0: Good morning. It has been an amazing week, hasn't it? Um, it's been exciting. I totally hear what Jan says about being tired. It's been a bit full on. But um, but here we are. And I think there's this tangible sense that God is doing something, that God is... Um, God is breaking through in places and God's kingdom is around us. And maybe we're seeing, maybe we've seen this week some more flickers of it and some more signs of it and some more glimpses of it and some more um, experiences of it. And um, and I want to talk this morning, I want to carry on our series um, on faith. And um, we've been looking at faith and it feels like it's the right... Thing for us to be pushing into and digging into over over these weeks. What does it mean to be a church of faith? What does it mean to be a people of faith? What what does faith look like, and what does faith not look like? Because I think sometimes we can, um, I think sometimes we can be more influenced by the the dominant worldview over things than we we think. We think things are Christian when actually they're quite infiltrated by the dominant worldview, and I'll explain a little bit of what I mean. Um, We live in a world that um, loves formula, loves knowledge, loves to have everything nailed down, measured, evidential. We want to be able to prove it. We want to be able to evidence it. We want to be able to know it, and so we have every action has an equal and opposite reaction. We love this sort of stuff, because it makes sense of stuff, because we can measure it. There's n- then we don't get surprised by anything. We have formulas for everything. E equals MC squared. A plus B equals C. And all these sorts of formulas that we have, because we, we pursue certainty. We live in this secularized world that pursues certainty. We believe knowledge is the answer to everything if we can just attain more knowledge if we can just advance humanity with technology with knowledge with connection with um, determination with good government with good organization if we can if our scientists can teach us more and more and more about the world that we live in. If we can attain all knowledge, then we can advance and we can advance and we can advance until we make it, until we reach utopia, until all our problems fizzle away and disappear because we're so advanced we're so smart, we're so knowledgeable, we've figured it all out, we've learned so much, we've discovered so much, we've learned how to measure everything and achieve everything and do everything. And so we celebrate advancement, but the problem with advancement is that we is that we get a little bit arrogant. Now no one can no one can argue that our advancements over the last even over the last decade, have just been astronomical. No one can argue that science isn't doing incredible things. But we become a little bit arrogant about it, and we think that it's the best it's ever been, or it's the greatest we've ever been. You might remember that when, um, when man landed on the moon, President Nixon said, This is the greatest day in the history of mankind. The leader of a Christian country said landing on the moon was the greatest day in the history of mankind. You see, we lose perspective, right? Because some might go, well, there was that resurrection thing that happened. There was that, you know when God came like that, I don't know, let's, let's weigh it up. What do you think? Which one? You see, we lose perspective. We, 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 we become quite arrogant. And this happens all the time. We always think that the latest thing is the best thing. As a football fan, I get a little bit irritated about this because I supported, obviously, the greatest team that's ever existed. And... <laughs> with a decades of success. And then last year, Manchester City finally get around to winning some stuff. And suddenly, oh, it's the greatest team ever. And then this year, Liverpool haven't even won anything. They're going, oh, it's the greatest team ever. And like, because we have this sort of arrogance that kind of goes, the latest thing is the best thing. And we lose perspective of everything that's gone on before. I know, it was a cheap shot. But everyone's gone. <laughs> We lose perspective of everything that's gone on before. Because this is the greatest, and we're going to advance. And so we're so advanced. And the moon was an incredible thing. The landing on the moon was an incredible thing. But look at the advancements in just in the last few years. Look at what we know. Look how connected we are. Look how much mankind has advanced and developed and progressed. And there's this secularized worldview that we live in that says that if we can just attain more knowledge, if we can just progress, then, then we can reach this point where everything, all our problems disappear. We reach this utopia and we don't need religion anymore. We don't need faith anymore. We don't need any of this mystery stuff anymore and this fairy tales and whatever. We don't need any of that stuff anymore because we know because knowledge is power and knowledge is certainty and we know and the problem is that we're hitting a bit of a crisis in our secularized world view. Because we're advancing, and we're advancing, and we're advancing. We're making more advances. I said a couple of, two or three weeks ago, that if you go back 20 years or so, 20, 25 years, 30 years, change would happen once in a generation. Significant change would happen in our society about over about 20 to 25 years. And now it's happening over about a year to 18 months we are advancing so rapidly that the, it's very difficult to be experts in anything because the, t- the time you become an expert, it's past and it's, it's gone. Which is why we look to the young generation so much because we want them to be the experts because they're the ones who are adapting and they're the ones who are coming through, but they don't have the wisdom and the light lived life experience to edit that and to manage that. And so we end up in all sorts of crises. But there's a crisis ahead. Because we've advanced and we've advanced and we've advanced and it's working and it's working and we're learning more and we're knowing more, and we're discovering more. But the crisis is that we're just as violent, just as violent as we ever were. We're just as divided, if not more divided. We're just as tribal. There's just as much bigotry racism, sexism, and you know, we thought we cracked it, didn't we? We thought we'd sorted that racism stuff out and that sexism stuff out. We thought we'd had the... And then you kind of look around and then you see the Me Too movement and you see you see the level you just have to go and spend a few minutes on social media and you kind of go, do you know what, I'm not entirely sure we've cracked that bigotry stuff. We're just as divided as ever. There's a bigger gap now between the rich and poor than there has ever been throughout history, there's more selfishness and individualism than there's ever been. We're living in this crisis. We're living in this crisis on a, on a social level, and it's not just on a social level, it's on a personal level too. You see, the secularized mind is terrorized by mystery because we want to know everything. We want to have everything sorted. We, we don't like unknowns. We don't like unanswered questions. We want certainty, right? Certainty is the god of our secularized age. And so mystery is a problem. It terrifies us. And so we try and organize it out of our lives. So we make lists, Rachel. We make so many lists. We label people. No, you don't label people. It's just a list. We we label people. We assign roles to people. We define status and we solve problems and we just try and we get the right apps and the right gadgets and I don't just need an iPhone, I need a watch and I need a MacBook and I need a whatever. If if I just get enough gadgets, maybe I can organise myself enough that I don't have any mystery left. Believe me, technology is the greatest mystery ever known to man. But... We just, if I can just have the right gadget, if I can organise, if I can get the right apps, if I can manage things and, we, and I can make enough lists and I can organise enough things and I can do enough self-help groups and I can buy enough books that are going to improve me and if I can, if I can just, then I will, I'll be on, in control of everything. But Brene Brown says we are the most in debt, obese, addicted, medicated adult cohort in US history and that's... Almost certainly true for the UK too. So those self-help books aren't really helping, are they? Those apps and that technology isn't really cutting it, is it? You see, we're in a bit of a crisis. Because all these things we think are going to sort everything out for us if we can just sort it. And the problem is that a solved life is a reduced life. We're not created to know everything and organise everything and be on top of everything and not have any mystery or any wonder in our lives. A solved life is a reduced life. You see, we've forgotten to live. We've forgotten to keep our eyes open. We're so busy trying to sort everything and organize everything and be on top of everything and not be surprised by anything and know everything, we've forgotten to live. We're so busy pretending we've got a life on social media that we've forgotten to have an actual life in our life. And you might be going, okay, Adam... Bits of that might resonate, or all of that might resonate. Well, that sounds really interesting. I'm going to to talk about that some more. But what on earth has that got to do with faith? But you see, the secularized society, certainty is king. Certainty is everything. And so what we do is we say that faith is certainty. And, And you see, this is what we do in the church. If you just believe enough, if you're just confident enough, if you just pray enough, if you get your spiritual life right and you have enough faith and you clench your eyes and you close your eyes and you clench your eyes, maybe God will answer your prayer. And we say faith is certainty. And we you will hear sermons preached about this. You can go online now and you can go on God TV and you can go on all these things and there'll be somebody preaching that, oh, if you have enough faith... And so then the flip side you see, then certainty becomes a virtue, and therefore doubt. Questions become weakness and failure and suspect. You can't doubt, you can't have questions because you, you should have faith. You need to be certain because we know, right? And we can reel off all the scriptures. Certainty. But faith as certainty isn't a biblical concept. It's a secularized world concept. See, faith is not certainty. And if someone's telling you, if you just have enough faith, then everything will work out right. All they've done is adopted the worldview and overlaid it with our faith. See, Faith is not a psychological concept. It's not just something that happens in our mind. If I get my mind right, if I have the right attitude, if I pray enough, if I, if I believe enough, then it'll happen. No, but faith is not a psychological concept. Faith is a covenantal concept. It's about relationship. Faith isn't knowing what God is going to do. Faith is knowing what God is like, and committing to that, knowing who God is, and committing to that relationship, and committing myself to that relationship, and committing my own faithfulness to that relationship. But you see, relationships are messy. It's more about who we are called to be than what we are called to do. Because God is always trying to forge character in us, develop who we are. It's this path of discipleship that we go on. So God is always more interested in who we are called to be than what we are called to do, because if I have my character right, if we have our relationship right, if I'm walking with God right, then wherever I am, I will fulfill my calling. Whatever situation I'm in, I will bring about the kingdom of God. Because I'm in relationship with my creator. You see, sometimes we see God as a bit of a pit stop on a race. And we pull into the pits and we go, okay, God, what's next? Which, What job do you want me to do? Or what, what place do you want me to be? And God goes, well, I'd really like it. You know, if you could, like, whatever. Move to this country or go and be a missionary here. And you go, great, I'm off. And off we go. And we go and sort it. And then maybe a couple of years later, we kind of go back and go, That was a terrible, terrible lap. But anyway, um, what what do you want to do now? Because that really wasn't working out, and I've had a bit of a burnout, and I've had a bit of a meltdown, and a total car wreck around the corner. But what do you want to do now? And we see God as some sort of pit stop mechanic rather than our co-driver, co-pilot with us on the journey wherever it goes. And so we call to this long obedience in the same direction. But you see, when things go wrong... When things go wrong, we might step out on this journey, but when things don't seem to be working out, when we feel like it's not panning out the way we thought it would, and things seem to go wrong, then what we tend to do is we tend to resort to what we know. We tend to resort to what the world tells us is real. We tend to fall back into, well, I just need a bit more certainty. I just need to organize things better. I just need to get my spirit. I just need to be a better Christian. I just need to, whatever it might be. The picture there is of the... It's an illustration of the story of the Israelites and the golden calf. And this story happens when they've been freed from their slavery in Egypt and they're out in the wilderness on their way to the promised land and then they're at the foot of this mountain and God says, I'm going to meet you on top of this mountain and I'm going to teach you who I'm calling you to be. I'm not going to tell you about the land where you're headed. I'm going to talk to you about who I want you to be as a people because our calling is always about who God wants us to be rather than where God wants us to be. And they're like, okay, okay, but that's pretty scary. And you're up there in the mountain, that looks really terrifying. So Moses, why don't you go up and we'll stay down here. And don't make us go up the mountain because we'll die. So could you go up the mountain? And um, we promise we'll do whatever you say. And Moses heads up the mountain, but then he doesn't come back for a few days. And all a bit terrified, going, oh my goodness, this isn't panning out well. And it's terrifying. And God's quite scary when you're up close. And we're just going to step back and we're going to be down here. And so this bizarre story, because they we go, well and who's kind of their leader goes oh well give me all your gold and we'll throw it into this but we will make something and they make a golden calf you're kind of going I don't really understand what's going on there until you understand that the Egyptian god is a calf and you're going ah so God's freed them from the society they're in from the culture they're in from the slavery they're in but as soon as things get a little bit scary as soon as things seem to go a little bit wrong they resort back to what the culture tells them is real, and I think we do the same because we because God's a bit scary, and so we want to keep our distance a little bit. You see, and so formula we kind of resort to formula. We go, oh well, you tell you what you and you say to the church leaders and the pastors and the priests and the one who go, you you go and hear God, and you tell us what God says, and we promise we'll do what He says, but don't make us. Don't make me go up the mountain for myself because that's terrifying. But actually, unfortunately, people, my role, our role as a leadership team is to encourage all of us up the mountain to encounter God together for ourselves. Because you see, we we crave formula. We're gonna kind of go, no, oh, yeah, but just tell us what to believe. Tell us what the rules are, tell us what to do, draw the lines, who's in, who's out. Tell us what's going on, and we promise we'll do it. Because it puts us back in control, you see? Because if I, if I know what I have to do, and I know what I have to believe to, make, to get God's forgiveness so God will let me into heaven or whatever our thing is, then actually I'm now in control because I decide whether I believe that or whether I can do that. God is now just a vehicle to the outcome that I want. But actually, what God wants is relationship. What God wants is us to have faith in Him and who He is. So formula puts us back in control, and it keeps our distance. You see, we live in this crisis where science says that what you see is all there is. That's all that's going on here. Science says unless you can measure it, unless you can evidence it, unless you can, then it doesn't. It's not necessarily. It's not really true. And so. Everything is just a sum of its parts. One plus two is three, A plus B is C. But actually, science doesn't tell us that. Little statistic here. So, there are approximately seven, that's 21 zeros. So, whatever that is, gazillion, bazillion, fazillion, gazillion, zillion, whatever that is, atoms in the average body. Probably a few more in mine, probably a few less than somebody else's, but average, we average out seven gazillion bazillion bazillion whatever atoms in in the human body. But the fascinating thing about that is if you take me apart one atom at a time, you will end up with a pile of seven gazillion bazillion 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 atoms. Not one of those atoms is alive. Not one of them. And yet, I'm alive. And yet, I can create. And yet, I can love. And I can move. And I can exist. And I can influence. And I can, I can do all these things. But I'm just seven bazillion gazillion atoms, really, none of which are alive. And yet I'm alive. And yet you're alive. Do you see? You're a miracle. And science, we haven't quite figured that out yet. How that happens. And really, you know, we're just a bit of an amalgamation of some very ordinary chemicals. There's a bit of nitrogen, a bit of hydrogen, a bit of carbon, and a bit of calcium, and all these sorts of things. But chemicals that you would find in your chemistry lab at school. That's all we are. But if guarantee you, if you go into school tomorrow and go, actually, sir, can I just have a couple of hours in the science lab? I'm just going to throw a few of these things together. You're not going to come out with me. So, and you might be pleased about that, but what you're not going to do is create life because we don't know how to do that. And the other amazing thing is that it just suggests that maybe there's more going on here than just the A plus B equals C and the 1 plus 2 equals 3. There's more than just the sum of our parts is. Do you know that your atoms change as you live? So even your bones, all the atoms that make up your bones, change. Over the the period of about nine years, every single atom will be a different atom in you. Doesn't that blow your mind? So if you go back a decade ago, there probably probably isn't a single atom that is the same atom that makes you. But I bet you have memories that go back more than ten years. How does that happen? What, what's that? I bet you have dreams and you have hopes and you have desires and you have plans and you have skills and you have personality and you have DNA and you have, you have, all, this, you have all this stuff about you we kind of go, we don't quite know how that happens. And how do these atoms that are currently you know to be currently you and not the last person that they were or the last thing that they were at this point in time? Because you're you. But your atoms have just had a bit of a re jig about, they, we are more than the sum of our parts. There is more going on here than just what is measurable, which brings me to this picture. As followers of Jesus, we, there is this suggestion there, there is another reality that we are living in called the kingdom of God. That There is the reality that we kind of see around us, and, but actually there's another reality that is invading, that is, in, that is working its way into all reality. And we are invited to partner with it. Jesus starts talking, saying things like, well, the kingdom of God is near, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God is among you and the kingdom of God is in you. And the kingdom of God is yours. And sometimes we make the mistake of equating church with the kingdom of God and we have missed the point profoundly when we do that because the kingdom of God is so different and much more than gathering together as a church, however great the worship is kingdom of god is amongst you and it's near you see and we kind of drew, grown up in this sort of again secular idea and greco-roman idea of well heaven's up there somewhere and it's not really real and the real reality is everything that's here but this what jesus seems to point to is going no, is another reality and it isn't just somewhere else otherworldly it is next to you and it is among you and it is in you and you possess it And you can bring this about. And this is what we're called to as church. This is what we're called to partner in. This is what we're called to partner in. The kingdom of God is near. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Whatever you ask for in my name will be given to you. You will do even greater things. I will be with you even to the end of the age. See, God isn't somewhere else. God is right here. There is so much more going on than just what you can see and measure and taste and touch. There is a different reality amongst us. But it requires a mystery. In a world that insists on certainty, the kingdom of God is about mystery. And you see, mystery is not to be understood or defined which is what our instinct is to do. Oh, that's something I don't quite understand. So if I read hard enough, study hard enough, think hard enough, then maybe I'll understand it. And then I could probably write a book and I could make a lot of money. Neither of those things are true. But it's because we want to control it, because we want to turn that mystery into a certainty. But mystery is to be lived and experienced. And enjoyed because it expands us, it elevates us beyond the everyday and the obvious and the present, and it takes us beyond into a different reality. it takes us beyond into greater things. And there are all these mysteries that aren't to be solved. they are to be lived and they are to be experienced, and they are to be enjoyed with God. mystery of grace, the mystery of love the mystery of forgiveness the rhythm of death and destruction and, re- and death and resurrection that flows through life and sometimes we have to let things die to see things come back again and to see the new sometimes we have to let the old go to see the new come in and this rhythm of death and resurrection is everywhere around us and it's a mystery and the mystery of prayer how does that even work this god who is the creator of all things who holds all things chooses to be in relationship with us as individuals wants to be known by us the mystery of faith like a child and jesus says unless you have faith like a child you will not access the kingdom of god see faith is a journey of discovery do you want to come up joe Faith is a journey of discovery, experience, and wonder. But we have to allow ourselves to enter into it, to be present into it. We have to allow ourselves to let go of our need for certainty, for everything to be defined, for everything to be locked down, for everything to be known. And we allow ourselves in this relationship with God to enter into discovery and experience and wonder. Faith is a covenantal sharing of life and beauty and creation. This is the life that we're called to live. And this is where we find Jesus saying, well, do you know what? As you enter this, as you walk with me, you will do even greater things. You carry the power to heal to call out life, to restore, to renew, to forgive, to see the sparks of life. Faith is the ushering in of the new reality proclaimed by Jesus into our world, into our community. You see, these realities are at war with each other. And our purpose is to bring in God's kingdom wherever we are. And finally, faith is opening our eyes and our ears to the flickers and echoes of what God is up to. What God is already up to way before we even got there. And then we dare to get involved. This is who we're called to be. This is what God is doing. When we sing, when we worship, when we live out, when we choose to love, when we choose to forgive, when we choose to pray this is what we're doing we're wrestling ourselves away from this mindset of certainty we're wrestling ourselves away from this mindset of the world that says that everything has to be known and everything has to be nailed down and everything has to be definable and evidenceable, or whatever that word is and everything um, and saying but you know what i know god I know who he is and wherever this goes and whatever this looks like because I do not know what God is up to but I want to be involved. I want to have my eyes opened and see more of these flickers and glimpses. I want to have my ears open and hear more of these echoes. Who else wants that? I think a lot of us do, right? So why don't we pray for that? If that's something you want, why don't you stand now? And we'll pray for it. Don't just stand because the person's next to you standing, or just like let this be a commitment and a covenant, because faith is about covenant. Lord, we want to we shake off our need for certainty. And we want to step into faith. Taking the next step when we don't know what's after it. Walking that walk, arm in arm with you, wherever the path leads. Because we know you are God and we know you are good. And Lord, open our ears and our eyes to your reality, to your kingdom. May we see more and more of you, and may we have the courage to join in, to get involved. When we're walking down the street, when we're in the supermarket, when we're in our workplace, when we're in our home, when we're amongst our friends, when we're amongst our community, may we see you May we recognize the echoes of your kingdom. Lord, we don't want prayer fest just to be a week when everything ramps up a bit and then we go back to our normality and our certainty and our everyday. Because, Lord, we believe you're up to something. We believe you're doing something quite new. We believe you're doing something quite exciting. We believe you're doing something quite profound. And we want to join in. We don't want this to subside. We want this to grow. We don't want to be numbed by the society and the mindset and the world that we're in. But we want to be agents of your kingdom. So Lord, we commit ourselves to that now. We commit ourselves to you and to your kingdom, and may we be people who embrace mystery, who have eyes and hearts that are able to wonder, and may we be people who are known by you and people who know you. Amen.